Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. I guess today's guest on the show kind of reminds me how far we've come with the podcast because he was a guest we had on not right at the start, but kind of like very early in this uh, podcast. Episode 20 is actually one of my favorite episodes ever, simply Same. because the pump pusher round never, ever fails to get me la- laughing. Like I'm always <laughs> laughing at the pump. Pusher. I, sometimes I just fast forward it just to hear that part. It's so funny. Um, it is, of course, my good friend, Austin Chu, who is probably better known in the horological world as Horror Loop. So welcome to the show, Austin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, before starting, I just would like to congratulate you guys for everything that you've achieved in the past, you know, since me being on the podcast, the, you know, plethora of guests that you guys have had on. It's, it's been amazing. So uh, congratulations and uh, love what you guys do and keep, keep killing it, basically. But uh, I really appreciate that fake humbleness. But uh, <laughs> so Austin, after we released your episode, be honest with yourself. Be honest with us. How many times did you listen to yourself? Honestly, like probably once because I don't like listening or watching to myself. I don't know. I, I don't think that's just me. I feel like that's quite a lot of people, right? It's like, I feel, I, I feel <laughs> uncomfortable bad. watching myself. I'm always like, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Like, you know, it's always, <laughs> it's always like that, right? And so normally, like sometimes I actually like things that come out, I don't actually watch it because I'm like, embarrassed to see myself <laughs> like I don't know it's like it's uh I don't know how to put it but it's yeah I, I didn't listen to it many many times I listened to it once or twice I think um I'd but, say uh, I'd yeah. say for the most part not just in our interview in interviews in general you uh are pretty you come off pretty calm it comes out quite natural even mm-hmm. though I know a lot of stuff you're saying is like bs anyway like it comes <laughs> off like natural you know what I mean I mean, I don't think I don't think it's BS. I just think, uh, you know, I you just know. destroyed <laughs> all the effort Austin put in to make. No, like... I don't, I don't know. I don't nah, know no one listens like, to me. Everybody to loves the stuff he pedals out. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, I just regretting coming onto the show. Anyway, Austin, yeah. how much do you love the waiting yeah. list podcast? Come on. I love it so much. It's uh, <laughs> no, but being completely honest, man. Like uh, out of out of most like watch podcasts, like I, I really do like what you guys do. Especially, I mean, having three Asians as well be the host of a watch podcast, like that's pretty pretty cool, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like five six years ago, um, that wouldn't you know like that. I thinking that an Asian podcast could actually um, invite and actually have so many industry leaders and figures, whether collectors people from brands owners of brands be on the podcast that's really cool and it's representing you know something that is very very important to me and I'm sure important to all of you guys having representation in the space right Mm. and so yeah see Daniel it's not all I think I think I think it's because you led the way you know as the first Asian proper Instagram celebrity right you led the way and inspired me to do this podcast no dude that see that's (laughs) (laughs) that's right um and by the way yeah just taking on just following on from your episode 20 just for the sake of all single men are you still with jasmine yeah i am 
that's, that's a shame. So that's a shame. You, you better you better marry her because you know you're going to be in such a long term relationship. I mean, how many years has it been, dude? You need to put a ring on that, right? And Jasmine, you need to treat me to dinner. <laughs> that's it's great. So uh, very very happy together. So good. Anyway, good. Right. Anyway, that's jokes aside. We'll actually go into the interview properly now. So. While this podcast itself has been developing, you too have also been developing. Um, not only do you have some hair on your chest now, but you <laughs> managed to find some time to develop a watch platform called Risk Check. Yeah. Tell us what Risk Check is in your own words. I mean, Risk Check is kind of like a kind of a platform that I wish I had when I was 15, 16, when I just started getting into the space when I started buying and selling watches, just, you know, I was at a period in my life when I was 15, like maybe up until 22, where I could only have two, three watches in my collection at each given time. And every time I need to buy another one, I'd have to sell another uh, one piece in my collection. Cause it's just, I didn't have enough money at the time. Right. And, um, you know, I experienced a lot of things in the industry for a pretty short amount of time. I, I would say, I've been treated like absolute dog shit by brands, been treated like a king by brands. I've been treated, um, you know, I've been scammed buying watches online. Like I bought a real, uh, my first 5711, like I remember I was, I don't remember how long ago it was, but it was below retail or like just around retail and um, bought it on Chrono and the dial was dented. The movement didn't even like, it was, it was like slow by like 10 minutes a day. And, you know, it's just like, but the watch was sold as like completely perfect and like, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I've experienced a lot of this type of stuff in the past. And, you know, all of these things are barriers of entry for the next generation. And all we want to do is inspire the next generation of watch consumer and kind of change the way that they buy and sell watches in a sense where I want consignment to be the norm in the future, because that's what it should be. And having a low commission model where buyers net a lot more than they did in the past and sellers basically have a platform where they're selling to end users anonymous end users and they feel you know safe uh in the platform and same with buyers right um and so the future of us is a verse check is we're going to try to work with more and more watch brands for authentication and try to basically bridge the gap between primary and secondary um as well and put secondary on the same level as primary right no one no one looks at a Picasso and says, hey, that's a secondhand Picasso, right? It's a Picasso. And in the watch space for the average person, like secondary market or whatever, still kind of has, you know, uh, bad connotations to it, or people are not, they, they trust it a lot less than the primary market. And I think this is, you know, it holds true for many reasons, um, but we're trying to change that. And so, uh, yeah, our average customer is below 30. And so I think it's a testament uh, to what we do. Um, can, you, can you remind us uh, what the average age of your customer is like? Like mid mid twenties, like high, mid late twenties, mid like, late twenties, twenty eight, like mm. around around that age. Um, but our average order value is well above one hundred k USD, right? And so it's um, our our clients are very young, mostly self made, which is which is great to see. Um, they're either professionals or just getting into the watch space. Like our, our customers are not, you know, we obviously do have a lot of watch nerds, but you know, over 50% of our customers, they're buying their first, second, third watch and they're buying it from us. And that, that's what I, I want to see. I want people to have their first experience to be a good experience because, you know, if, if I wasn't such a diehard watch nerd and 
back in the day when I walked into watch boutiques and stuff and they wouldn't even give me the time of day because they assumed I couldn't afford anything. Experiences like that can really turn someone away from the hobby forever, right? Especially as a young person, because it, it puts you off it. And unless you're a diehard and you really want to learn and you really are like, okay, I'm going to, you know, subject myself to degradation once more and enter the boutique. Like, you know, like, unless you have that mentality, you're kind of like, just not going to go in anymore. And if there are no proper secondary markets or places or stores, then it also makes it harder for them to actually see and realize these timepieces and actually wear them in person because that's becoming increasingly hard today because watch stores are empty. They don't even have store, they don't even have uh, models for people to see. And that's something mm -hmm. that again is, is a big issue, right? It's like, I remember when I was 15, 16, I would walk into any watch store and then every watch would be out, right? And I could at least see and experience or at least see these watches in the metal, but it's not really a thing anymore. And in the art world, it's different. Like an average person, when you walk into an art store, or I mean, an art gallery, you're, you're not, if you're not aware that the gallery is primary or secondary, chances are they, they look similar and they get, you get the same service. Um, you get champagne, the gallerist knows their shit and you learn, right? And, and it becomes an experience, but in the secondary space and watches, obviously there are people that do do that, but it's still the less, it's still the minority. Um, in the secondary space. And, and so that's something that we're trying to change. It's take turning watches from less of a commodity and making it more of like a passion, like base, like uh, basically a passion asset, because at the end of the day, it's like you are spending a lot of money on it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, what we're trying to do. Um, basically an intersection of community marketplace and editorial. So, so, so just so that people have a better idea, because I want to make it really clear for the audience, the differentiating points of like your platform with other other things that people may have experienced right so you know most people will have heard of like chrono 24 yeah mm -hmm. what would you think like you you know chrono 24 would have existed when you were buying, yeah. buying your first 5711 yeah what was about that experience you didn't like and what does risk check do to better that experience yeah i mean chrono is great right like it's like the godfather of like everything online like in the watch space right and it's like used as like a price checker and a lot of people use it. i mean i use it every day too basically right but um with chrono i mean first of all the prices as you know like they're list prices they're not really transaction prices and so they're not it's not really that accurate and um also for watches the other issue is it's not like you see a watch on chrono and you can buy it you know, a lot of the watches that they have, they don't even have the stock. It's just a stock image. It's just, it's a misrepresentation of, of actual stock. Whereas like with us, everything you see, you can buy, we vet it. And so we give our guarantee that this watch is, you know, completely uh, legit. Whereas with Chrono, especially with private sellers, it's kind of DIOR, like do your own research type thing. And if you do buy something that's messed up, just like I did in the past, like if the person is from a different country and speaks a different language, how are you going to it's very hard to have any legal recourse or anything like that without spending a lot of money hiring a lawyer or whatever, right? Um, and with us as well, we have offline experiences uh, and we build communities. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. basically we were throwing an event in two days, uh, actually tomorrow, um, the first one since fifth wave. Uh, and uh, basically we wanna create these experiences where uh, we threw an event once 300 people came um, and they were all young people wearing watches, just trying to find other young people that they can speak to and, you know, bond over the hobby. And that's, that's kind of like what, what we did with Shanghai Watch Gang, like in the beginning, right? Like kind of our idea of like mm -hmm. building a community and we're kind mm -hmm. of also taking that, um, for the next gen and it's more real, right? Our buyers know what sellers net, 
sellers know what buyers pay and stuff like that. And so it's a, mm. it's a very transparent um, platform, which I think is very important. But yeah, very different. It's more localized. It's a lot more tailored. It's a lot more, it's curated. Um, and so, yeah. And you get what you pay, you get warranties. And some of our watches are actually, the brands give extended warranties as well. Um, and so we have the brand support for what we do, which is also quite important. So what you're saying is you have more, um, well, it's a more of a secure place for yeah. either side, either party where you're protecting, you're taking care of so many other things that you would, well, the onus was on the buyer. Most of the onus is always on the buyer, right? To, to not get screwed over. And you're yeah. taking some of that responsibility back onto yourself. Yeah. And okay. also adding like, you know, holistic services that, you know, like we have insurance, uh, we have collateralization, like we have all of these type of things that, you know, services that I wish I had uh, in when I had my watch. I mean, I remember when I smashed my 5712 bezel in, in China, I was like, fuck, I wish I had insurance because then I could just like take it in and the, the servicing would be free. Right. Um, and like, just stuff like that. And like collateralization, like uh, back, back when I, I could only afford to have two or three watches in my collection at any given time. Um, you know, when I, I got a call from an AD or if I just saw a watch online that I wanted to buy, I would be forced to sell a watch, even if I didn't want to sell it. And so at that point, I wish like I could just take the watch to a bank and they can just give me 50% of whatever the watch was worth. Um, and obviously I actually did that in Bank of China and they told me to quit. They literally told me to roll away. <laughs> and, uh, and I was really fat at the time. So it probably was more literal, but, um, but, uh, yeah, so, so we provide these services that basically I wish I had, right. Because I could afford them monthly at the time, but I couldn't afford to like for the new watch, I could afford to pay monthly, which is what collateralization kind of does, mm -hmm. but, um, I couldn't afford to buy it outright. And so it's like all these services that I wish I had basically. Right, Long Long, please come in. Um, I don't actually have a question, but I just want to comment on, like, as a customer, the kind of experience that you have. If I have to pinpoint something that makes it very different. Okay, so I know the decor, like the way the store is set up, there's a lot of really good points, but the biggest difference is more, um, how do I, okay, so I, every time I go in, like, obviously I know Kevin, right, Kevin Kiro. But I don't think it's the fact that I know him, but it's the way that when he shows you a piece and you're like, oh, nah, this is not really my thing. Mm -hmm. He is quite proactive to introduce other pieces to you, which you probably would have not thought about. And then yeah. obviously I'm like, no, it's okay. It's so much trouble for you to take it out. But he's like, no, 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 it's fine. You don't have to buy it. Just try it. But then it yeah. opens up your mind to explore other references and other shapes and styles and stuff, which I think most other stores, I mean, I love watching watchbox so much and i rave about them right but if you go to watchbox they there's a lot of stuff in the safe and there's a lot of stuff that i think they seem to be more reluctant to show you unless you ask specifically but at like risk check it's more like it's like going into someone's home and they're just like no 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 try this try that and you just feel really like welcome oh yeah. Thank you so much for That's, saying that. Yeah. Thank really you for Risk Check sponsoring this video, uh, this episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we really need that five thousand so bad. Yeah. The term was for Lolo to ask this question. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, but I really, I really appreciate um, you saying that. But at the end of the day, a lot of that also comes down to actually our business model, right? Because 
for us, like uh, we make the same amount percentage wise on every watch. And so um, our mm. watch specialists are not actually inclined to sell one watch over the other because they want to make more commission on one watch. Whereas like, I know a lot of, uh, you know, other places that do secondary that own their stock, they have different margins on every watch. And so, mm -hmm. of course, they're more inclined to sell a watch where they have higher margins because they probably will make more commission on that watch. And so with us, we don't really have that issue. And I, I'm glad that that um, actually uh, is, is appreciated because that's something that I think is also very important because we, we always want lifetime. Like I've, I always tell um, our watch specialists, like we're looking for lifetime customers. Like I don't, you don't need to come in and buy a watch. Like, you know, like I just come in and have a good time they'll eventually buy or sell or whatever. It's like, it's all about creating like that feeling of feeling comfortable, not being intimidated and just feeling like you can actually explore stuff. And that's, that's also why um, we have, you know, 35 brands, a diverse, uh, diverse collection, but we also do have some hot models and the hot mm. models are kind of used as a gateway drug. Like people come in, they want to see the 5711 and 15202. But as you said, long, long, like, we can be like, actually, for the same price, you can get X, Y, Z, or you can get other things as well. Do you want to see it or try it on? Mm. Um, but yeah. Um, I have a question, and I just want to take us back a little bit. You said something earlier that's really interesting and quite relatable to me, but might sound strange. And mm. if it doesn't even like, maybe it doesn't even make sense to our listeners, which is when you said, you know, when I was, you know, was first starting off in this hobby and I would walk into stores and people treat you like shit, right? Because yeah. they see a young person walking in and you might want to see some things from the showcase and they say, oh, no, like we can't show it to you or basically just like, you know, turning the back of a hand uh, yeah. against you, which, you know, now um, people see you obviously have this really big and successful like account and you know you're you're somewhat of a um yeah like a celebrity within within the online watch community and they wouldn't suspect that you had that experience um also so to those who are listening who's you know younger and and might be also experiencing that same like shitty service uh, which i have also experienced quite a few times when I walk into boutiques and, and they're just like yeah like are you buying it as a gift or do you want it yourself and they're like oh, for myself and then I'm automatically led to this section that you know I'm not interested in and then I was like okay can I see this like, no, no no please let us show you this and whatever um so so my question is first of all like why do you think that brands or service people um are more prone to treat, you know, younger audiences like this, even when, you know, people know that there is large buying power within any demographic. And second of all, um, following what Lan Lan just said, even though I haven't been to risk check, um, what like ethos have you um, told your, your partners or your employees to to keep in mind when you um when like a, a guy or a girl who doesn't really know much about watches walk into the store the first time and like what kind of experience do you want to to give them and what do you do to give them that experience yeah i mean okay that's a very uh 
long question. Multiple it times. is. Yeah, yeah. Trust me. If you can still remember the question, well done to you. Yeah. I do. I do. Surprisingly, I'm surprised I remember the questions. Um, so the first part of your question, like why? It's a personal why? thing. That's why. Because yeah. I've been treated like shit. So, every, so that's why, you know, I think has. it's important. It, it resonates with a lot of young people, especially if you're a person have, yeah. that was brought into a store. I mean, that walked into a store by yourself without like being introduced by like legacy, like, or like, you know, mm-hmm. unless you're a legacy client, then and you're young and you're introduced by the parents that's already a vip then it's then you normally get treated like shit and Mm -hmm. i think i think it's you know the watch industry i think really changed in such a short amount of time where the average age of the buyers have really reduced dramatically but i don't think brands have really adapted to that because you know if you're thinking about the 90s or the 80s you know the average buyer for most watch brands would be someone in their late 50s Right, like someone kind of retiring, buying like their one watch, and then that's also why Patek's uh, slogan also resonated and did so well because it was kind of an a way to convince yourself that you're not spending so much money on yourself, you're spending it on your kid because you were old, right? And so um, all of this type of stuff, I think, uh, also in terms of fashion, right? It's it's thirty years ago, forty years ago, like uh, the watch industry is one of the only industries where the uniform hasn't changed in in like ever if you're looking at fashion stores they change every season if you're looking at art galleries there's no set uniform it's just whatever looks cool whereas in watch stores it's all kind of either navy blue suit or black suit brand pin thinner skinny tie based on what is cool like in this like in these five years and that's kind of it and i think also that also separates themselves from the buyer nowadays because in the past if you were buying watches you would probably also look like that be in a suit or whatever because in the past like I mean I think the what luxury and what you know having money today is is totally different to what it was 30 40 years ago like 30 40 years ago if you were driving a Ferrari you were expected to be in a suit expected to have nice leather shoes expected to have a nice mechanical watch 30 years ago if you were driving a Ferrari wearing a t-shirt wearing a G-Shock or a Richard Mill or whatever or or G-Shock or just even no watch and wearing flip-flops people would think that you stole the car Whereas today, if it was the opposite, and if you see someone in a suit driving a Rolls Royce, you'd assume that they were the driver, right? It's like everything has changed dramatically, and there's like no rules nowadays. And I think that's also something that brands haven't really adapted to, because um, if you walk into a boutique, everything is super, you know, like very, I mean, kind of pretentious, right? Like uh, everyone's like standing up, like very intimidating and like all this type of stuff. And it's like, yeah, that does work for a certain demographic, but for the next gen, how do you expect to be friends with these clients if you're not, if you can't even relate to them on any level? And that's something that, you know, we try to change. We want to relate to our clients. We want, I tell our watch specialists to be friends with our clients, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what we want to be. We want to be the newcomer's watch guy, basically, or watch girl, like, you know, because that's, that's something that um, I think is, uh, is really important. And also another thing of what I think, watch brands i don't think watch brands do it on purpose right like i don't think there's a single watch brand that's like yeah let's treat young people like shit like i don't think they're at hq saying that but i just think that that's what actually ends up happening because of also like just it's just years and years of like uh i guess they're just used to treating young people like shit i guess because the average buyer in the past was not that young and with that said as well a lot of young buyers today a lot of them are flippers Right. Like in the past two years, a lot of uh, a lot of speculators that are entering the watch space, there are a lot of them are young. 
And mm -hmm. so obviously if you're, you know, a sales associate or whatever of a store um, and you see a young person walk in, you might just automatically have an association of, oh, if they're not legacy or if they're not whatever, that then they're a flipper, which is, again, a very wrong mentality. But I'm sure that there are a lot of people that walk in that are just flippers. Right. And I think that also might be the reason, whereas it, when an actual passionate person like like us, like when we walk in, um, they might not see that because they've been dealing with so many flippers and you know, like that, that might also be like a case, but the flipper thing was probably more of a phenomenon that came up in the past two, three years, definitely not five, six, seven years ago. Right. Um, five, six, seven years ago, I think they just assumed that we couldn't afford anything. Mm -hmm. And so they just want to waste their time. And I think that's uh, yeah. But in reality, like, even though the, the motives of them treating us like shit are different um, five, six years ago till now, the end result is the same. We still get treated like shit. So, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> reasoning is might have shifted but the end result is the same um and for us i mean it's the, our ethos is very simple i mean we we work with our colleagues are all you know they're they're all passionate as well like you know long like you're talking about kevin kiro like he loves watches right mm -hmm. and so it's like that that also helps a lot um and also uh with us as well like it's we do everything at Rishik from the perspective of a buyer and a seller, because that's who I was. I mean, if no collector is a collector, unless they've sold watches, really. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I truly believe that because unless you ever have buyer's remorse or seller's regret, you will not know what watches are really right or really wrong for you. You don't, you just won't. And that's something like, you, you know, it's just like, you know, practice makes perfect. Making mistakes makes you better type of thing. If you don't experience that, then how do you become better? You just become a hoarder and you just have thousands of watches and you don't actually know like what's good for you or what's bad, like what's bad for you as a collector or what actually suits you more unless you experience buyer's remorse or seller's regret. It's I, so I, I true. Know. So true. But the notion isn't spoken enough of at oh, all, which is BS, right? It's like, like what kind of an age are we living in today? There's no young person that I know that wears the exact same thing that they did today than they did five years ago. That's just not the case anymore five years ago my favorite brand was panerai right it's like mm -hmm. like six six seven years ago or it's like taste change and your taste change as well like every every person's taste change especially for young people right the older you get your tastes get more you know like solidified and they change less but for young people having the notion of oh you're buying a watch and you're keeping it for life is actually unhealthy for the industry actually as well because it stops people from being able to buy primary or secondary because they're not recycling anything they're just holding it right mm. um and so yeah it's yeah i agree it's something that the industry does not talk about nearly enough um and it's actually something that without buyers and sellers the, the industry would die and that's that's a fact as well so All right i i also want to take it back a little bit because you said mentioned a few things and I also think that, you know, we said it, we passed through it very quickly, but maybe some of our audience haven't really had the opportunity to digest what you said, which is some of the stuff you said related to uh, risk check. So insurance, obviously we all know what insurance is, but how does, let's say, risk check insurance actually work? Because a lot of people might be listening right now and thinking, Do you know what, like, hang on is my watch insured by my home insurance already you know to a certain point yeah, yeah, yeah. like what are the limitations with home insurance and what kind of what kind of things like does your insurance like pay out for so if i like ding it you know and and how much would it cost like let's say so if we like use 5711 as a ballpark thing you know mm -hmm. what, what what would we be looking at so if you could just go I through mean, that we we could just yeah i mean uh 
Yeah. So basically for insurance, it's, we're trying to make the insurance process very, very easy for uh, collectors because in the past watch insurance, as you mentioned, did exist, but it was quite a, quite a hassle because it normally needed to be bundled with home insurance. And if it normally is bundled with home insurance, they have a lot of um, rules and regulations that you have to adhere to. And um, usually for home insurance, your watch is only insured at invoice value. It's not insured at market value, which is also kind of stupid. And so with us, um, uh, we, we work with Circles Group, uh, who is underwritten by Lloyds of London. And so they, they're specialists in, uh, you know, collectible, uh, insuring collectibles and high, high value goods, basically. And we can sell insurance, watch insurance just by itself. So you can insure one watch. It doesn't need to be bundled into home insurance. It's just you're insuring the watch, right? Um, and we give the customers um, the option to either choose to insure it at market value or at invoice value. And the cost uh, is kind of flexible based on, you know, what information you provide. And so if you're living in a building with 24 hour concierge, there's cameras, you have a big safe and, you know, you tell us like the safe model and all this type of stuff, obviously the premium will go lower and lower, but on average, it's about 1% um, premium. And so it's like, uh, just to put things into perspective, it's like, uh, you, I know you said five, seven, 11, but it's like, you know, if you have a Pepsi and it's like 20 grand US, right? Like it'll literally cost you 200 bucks, like a year to insure your watch. It's less than a dollar a day. And if, and basically the insurance covers everything, it's from theft to you getting super wasted on a night out and dinging your watch and losing it also covers that. Or even if you just smash the bezel and break the watch, like the servicing is also covered. And so it's, uh, it's basically like an insurance for everything, right? It's like, and it's global insurance, but so far we can only do it for Singaporean and Hong Kong citizens. Um, and uh, we're looking to expand that uh, more. But um, yeah, oh, whoa, whoa. I don't know if you can disclose this yet, but what is kind of like the percentage uptake of people who buy watches at risk check going for uh, like a value added service such as the insurance? Quite a few, actually, and more so now. Um, like it, it, it's basically it's something that's still kind of new, right? It's Are like you the not... one that's going around holding a machete knife, trying to trying to like, <laughs> no, no, just so that you can pump up your insurance business. <laughs> no, oh, if anything, that would make it more expensive for clients to insure their watches if I was doing that, and I don't want that. Um, and so because they were no. all wearing black, as far as I know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> wearing white today, actually. So. <laughs> But um, no, uh, sorry, what was your question again? Sorry. Like, <laughs> um... I'm just picturing a, mach- a guy holding a machete running <laughs> and lost the question. Um, I can't remember what the question was. Do you guys remember? Uh, More people are like purchasing. the percentage of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. There's, there's for sure an uptick. I mean, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's mm. definitely about 10, 20% of our customers that, uh, that do end up buying watch insurance. And sometimes, What's also really cool is like some clients, they would buy watch insurance for a watch that they bought from us, um, but then they would end up the next day, like insuring like the rest of their collection or something or like five of their, or five pieces from their collection and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a service so, that's like, you, you think you don't need it until you need it, basically. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. one of those things. It's like, yeah. it's like yeah. Apple care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you don't need it but, until you break your phone. Right. And you're like, fuck, I should have bought it. Yeah. Yeah, so basically you're saying you you don't have to buy a risk check to have any watch insured. You can just go there and use your insurance service. But I also have a, a question, which is when you say market value, right? I assume it's oh, we the, market the market value at the time of purchase. 
yeah, yeah, we give the market value, but that's also, um, it's adjustable as well. It's like, uh, basically with the, uh, if you're speaking to us, like we could readjust the value every few months or whatever, based on like what, mm -hmm. so we can readjust as well. It's just basically like how watch insurance should be. How is market value calculated? Cause like they go up and down. Uh, we so we calculate it and we basically uh are aligned with circles uh they they also do their due diligence um mm -hmm. so it's like uh two-pronged basically um so two two parties are basically doing it um but normally so far we haven't had any uh like so far no one uh, the insurance company hasn't disagreed with uh our values or market values that we've been suggesting and our market values are usually based off of transaction value for the actual watch it's quite easy because they already paid for it if they bought it with us right but if it's a model uh, people usually insure like models that are above retail <laughs> like that's just like a, a thing people don't usually insure watches that are below retail or whatever and for watches that are above retail we usually already have transaction uh, numbers uh, or like we've sold a, a one or a few in the past. Yeah. And so it's uh, quite easy actually to, to give um, market values. But obviously in the past two months, the market has dipped a lot. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like right now, like we're readjusting some rates like for people basically because their prices of their watches went down basically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so and an yeah. another thing you mentioned, right, was the collateralization. Can yes. you um again you you did kind of explain it so let's say i'm a consumer how do i use that service like when is yeah. it appropriate for me to use that service yeah so we're still testing this uh we've given out only like about a few million us in loans like as like a test um for uh collateralization but it's basically we're working with partners so it's not our balance sheet um and uh we basically you know they it's basically like getting an advance uh when you're selling your watch it's like in the past you don't get any money when you sell your watch with us like that's a downside of risk check is that you have to wait right it's like that's because it. it's consignment isn't it yeah because it's consignment yeah. right and so i'm trying to solve that issue uh where you can actually get cash up front and when the watch sells you get the rest minus interest uh from the collateralization and we don't make any money from the interest like risk check it's all made by our lending partners because we're not a bank and that's not what we do um, we're just trying to provide more tools and services for our customers and you okay. don't have to use it obviously, but okay. you know, it's, it's something that's quite useful. So like if someone's trying to sell, you know, $2 million worth of watches and they need, you know, three, $400,000 advance, or maybe even if they're selling $2 million of watches and they need a million dollars advance, like we can do that basically. Um, oh. And uh, when the watch sells, obviously there's interest on it, but the interest is much lower than any of our competition. It's like three times lower than our competition. So, okay. um, yeah. And in terms of like offering a, you know, risk check being a safe place for buyers and sellers to, you know, offload or buy watches, would you say, you know, there is some similarity then to like collected man where they kind of like do a consignment model. Obviously they charge like, um, the higher percentage on the, on the 12.5, 12.5. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what you charge Austin. You can like reestablish that when you answer the question. Yeah. But charge eight. Yeah, pretty much yeah. similar because I know you guys like cater to a different demographic of um collector but they kind of like embrace like secondhand almost like it's first hand they actually do take on you know yeah like first-hand brands as well so would you say it's similar or would you say still say there's yeah, quite I a mean, big distance between I, you two? i mean i absolutely love what silas has done with a collected man right like i think uh, what they've done has been incredible um but i think i think with a collected man the i mean the buyers are more seasoned 
in a sense where like I think it's it's even more I mean it's extremely curated but very I mean they have their vibe right it's like you know if a watch is a collected man watch whereas like like a collected man doesn't sell the Pepsis or like the Daytona mm. or like you know like they don't sell stuff like that whereas with us it's like we do and obviously we also sell like the like you know rare stuff like we've sold you know eight or nine world records of watches that we can't really disclose um like super super important piece unique pateks piece unique ap's like piece unique you know stuff like that um but uh yeah like i think for us it's like we, we're trying to be more more mass in terms of like we, we want as many people as possible to enter the space um and so we're trying to offer as diverse of a product offering as possible um you know from like uh, IWC uh, Porsche design watches to like you know Richard Mill piece uniques or like you know just everything um, uh, on the spectrum basically and that's kind of like what we want to do um, and also it's like a it's more of like a holistic experience as well like if especially if you're in Hong Kong and uh, hopefully we'll expand into many more markets and also have physical locations in those areas as well um, and to be able to build communities but yeah what we're yeah it's it's just it's kind of different i mean like you know our clients they walk into our store they're all wearing air jordan ones and they're wearing you know like snapback caps and you know that's it's that type of customer what about, um, what about like a watchbox you know because watchbox you can like get paid straight up you can just sell your watch to them they can take it plus they have do have a lot you know a lot of stock so they have a lot of selection which is something you just said mm-hmm. um you know how do you see them are they would you say they're a big competitor to you or do you think they're different no i mean i think they're very different i mean again like watchbox i really respect what they've done right i mean they were the original pioneers i mm-hmm. think in the space of saying like hey like we can actually sell watches online and people buy them online like expensive secondary watches right and um i just think the business model is inherently very different um i mean they're they're more operating on you know they they own their inventory uh, and they buy from sellers but obviously as soon as you're buying stuff from sellers the business is incentivized to make as much margin as possible, right? Um, and so being, being being very diplomatic in your answer, <laughs> like you're very <laughs> careful with your words, because I know when I had lunch with you, it didn't sound like this. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like, no, no. It's it's true though. I mean, like, it's 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 just it's different, and so um, it's uh, there's no reason why multiple um, you know business models can't coexist in the same space, because at the end of the day, but, that's better for but customers. You are, you are... You are touching on an interesting point, right? So you 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 have a consignment model. They have basically an inventory model where they're looking to actively buy up a huge amount of stock all the time. What is like, you've obviously gone for the consignment model. Mm-hmm. Is that because of uh, cash restrictions or do you actually think that is the better model? And if it is, like why? Oh no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that it's a better model. Um, it's scalable. That's it. That's okay. all I need to say. It's scalable. Okay. It's unscalable if you're buying stock. So you think you, how, you, how are you like, gonna you run out of cash? You mean how are you or, gonna how are you gonna expand to fifty countries? You're gonna raise billions and billions of dollars if you own your stock. But if you don't and you're consigning, like we have sixty million US of stock, we paid zero for it, right? And that's that's kind of like uh, in in my opinion the uh, scalable way basically. Um, and then, and yeah, but it's at the end of the day, it's like it's still good for customers. Customers have different choices, right? Like if you need mm-hmm. cash right now, go to Watchbox or go to these places. If you want to, you know, if you don't mind sitting on your watch for a little bit and you want to net a little bit more, 
then sell through us right and there's mm-hmm. there's no right or wrong it's the, there's that the pie is big enough for everyone you know <laughs> and it's like it's not a zero-sum game in this industry and like the the other thing about secondary is we help each other as well it's i mean like watchbox and us we do business together as well right it's like we if they sometimes have sourcing requests or if we sometimes have sourcing requests and stuff it's like we also work together it's like i mean that's kind of like how the industry works right it's like Mm -hmm. very very unique in the sense where people do help each other in the secondary space um because they all benefit from it as well and so i think that's something that's also very very uh unique um about about our space okay um also through these last two years, right? You've seen platforms, again, changing a different model with uh, Loop This developing. And for those that don't know, it's like a 24 hour auction site just for yeah. watches. And, you know, Collective Man have recently, I think they've done like two or three auctions mm-hmm. uh, online, purely online. Yeah. Um, is that something you'll be looking to do? Um, is yeah. it something that interests you? And how do you see that? Yes, uh, we're developing it. Um, as well and uh, we're also going to launch uh, timed auctions as well um, and no it's, it's really smart it's just again it gives it gives you know buyers more of a choice and sellers more of a choice of how to dispose of their watch right or how to sell their watch and so yeah it's 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 a very smart model but again I think it attracts a different type of of, of consumer right and like at the end of the day it's like the, the customer if you're a seller the person that goes to Watchbox, the person that comes to Risk Check, the person that goes to Loop This to sell, they're different people at the end of the day because, because our business models are totally different. It's like the person that comes to us typically isn't someone that needs money like right now, right? Because if you do, then you wouldn't be down with the consignment model basically, right? And with auctions, a lot of it is, gam- you know, a little bit of gambler's mentality and like, you know, like you kind of like there's no guarantee of like you're just kind of like hoping it does really well, but you're also guaranteed that it sells very quickly, like within a week or something like that. And so it's like it's just it's for different kinds of sellers or uh, of different kinds of sellers. And so at the end of the day, it's like throughout these past few years, I think all of these platforms coming out has only been, you know, the, the person that's benefited the most is the customer. And so at the end of the day, that's, that's all that matters uh, for us. But yeah, we are, we are launching uh, timed auctions. Uh, okay. to answer your question, but yeah. Well, when, when, when do you reckon you're going to launch that? Just out of interest. Probably by the end of the year. Probably. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then something you mentioned earlier as well, which is you work with brands like, yes. uh, for authentication. Um, but what are the way, like, what are the, well, you just explain, how do you work with brands? Yeah, I mean, for authentication, um, for uh, sometimes brands even consign like smaller, I mean, not smaller, like bigger independent brands that even consign some watches to us, which is really cool. Um, and uh, we're, we're able to announce them, I think, uh, soon. So not yet, <laughs> but uh, working with a number of brands, I think five to five to six brands uh, that actually are working with us on an official like, uh, you know, CPO-ish level, um, which is really exciting. And uh, we also have, you know, maybe in the future we might also have limited editions coming up so okay mm. right um what we haven't addressed though i mean you've you've really explained like risk check really well i think anybody yeah most people listening will have a really good idea of it now but let's talk about you let's talk about like getting this off the ground how difficult what was it what were the most challenging aspects of doing it and you know, where do you see the upcoming challenges? So basically the question is challenges. Tell me about it. 
I mean, it's been an extremely challenging journey and it still is challenging, right? Um, I think uh, I think it's easy to to hate if you haven't done it yourself or if you just haven't done anything, period, because I've noticed a lot of haters are just second-gen rich people that actually haven't done anything in their lives. And so, of course, <laughs> it's very easy to hate, right, if you're that type of person. Um, and so I think... Uh, it was just hard, man. I mean, this is all new to me at the end of the day, like doing like a watch business is like, it, this was all like, it was just purely out of passion. Right. And it was hard because it was in the middle of a pandemic taking the store and landmark was like, I remember like sleepless nights forever, basically, because it's like, I've never opened a store before. I didn't know if people would like my concept. I didn't know if people would like the store, like the service, like the experience. Um, and it was just, it was just a lot of learning as you go. And also during the store as well, it's like, dude, I didn't, I didn't know how annoying it was to install HVAC or like, you know, like reinforce the floor for a safe. Like, it's like all these things that you don't think about that you're just like forced to learn, like, uh, as you do it. Right. And so it was like a lot of that because at the end of the day, we are a startup and a lot of our competitors, like they've been doing this for a long time. But that's also why we were able to come up with these models that in the past people didn't really uh, champion, which is like consignment, right? Like the fact that we have over 50 million US of watches consigned to us is a testament to trust. Because at the end of the day, these are people that are leaving expensive watches with us. And a lot of these people, a lot of our consigners, we've never met them. They've, they're from abroad or you know, they're from Middle East, America, Europe, all these places that they just, we, we they ship their watches to us to consign. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know, like hiring is a great challenge as well. Like we just had our team dinner yesterday. It was 19 people. And we were looking at the photo from like a year ago and we only had like five. And it was like insane to see like uh, the change. But um, at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know. Everything has been challenging, man. I don't think there has been a single thing that has been like a walk in the park, you know? Because it's like, yeah, I could talk about this for so long, like every single detail, like hiring, um, staffing, actually dealing, working with brands. Uh, into new markets, growing your team to scale, building our tech. Our tech is really trash right now. It's going to be very good in the future. Um, and uh, just building trust, building community and just... I don't know, man. Like, it's a, were there it's any a, were there any were there any situations where, like, you were really scared, and or any times where you had an epiphany, or it, or even times where you thought, "Oh my god, I I so didn't expect it to be like that." Dude, the store, like, like two months, like when the store just started, uh, when we just started that thing, um, it was just the learning curve was insane of like every, like, you don't think about all of these things, like insurance, like, um, you know, all of the, basically everything, like dealing with the interior designer, dealing with the contractor um, and dealing with the landlord. And basically before launching the store, it's just like, it's a huge commitment. It was not cheap to do, right? Like our store, I mean, Lung Lung, you've been there, you know, it's like, it, it's not- I've like been there too, mate. Yeah, oh yeah, you've been there too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's just you've been, you've been, you were in Hong Kong for like a week, dude. <laughs> and um, a month actually. Thanks. Huh? A month actually. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I saw you like once or twice. <laughs> I saw you three times. But um, but yeah, anyways. And so I, I just think like it's dude, the, the day before the store opening, I was just shitting it, dude. Like I, I couldn't like actually the two months before the store was opening, the closer it got to the opening day, the more scared that I was. And the more your toilet was your best friend. No, no, I was just <laughs> I was just, I couldn't sleep, like, just at night, like, there was periods of, like, a long time where it was just, I was getting, like, two, three hours of sleep a night, right, because I was just worrying about, like, so much shit, right, it's probably why I age so fucking much, but, um, but yeah, it's just been, uh, it's been tough, man, I mean, like, because people don't think about, once you open a store, dude, you have to keep it open, like, you know, <laughs> open every day, dude, yeah, like, shit. like no, no, but, you, no, but people don't think about that, when you're building the store, actually, your finish yeah. line, in your mind, mentally, is yeah. getting it open, you don't even yeah, think about, like, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, like, yeah, that's yeah, the, that's the yeah, thing in your mind, yeah, whereas, like, yeah. and then the day before the store opening, it's like, oh, shit, we actually have to be open every day for, like, ever, yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. And and that's really scary because we I've never done a yeah. store and it's about getting the service, the the right protocols and it's like just learning curves of like, you know, stock take inventory and like all this type of stuff. Like you see a watch store during the day and you're like, oh, yeah, all these watches are laid out every single day. All those watches have to be taken away, put in a safe, kept properly. And then every morning, really early, you have to take them all out place them all out and it's just like it, it's just operationally it was just something yeah. that obviously you don't think about until unless you've a done it or b uh yeah you don't think about unless a you've done it or b you're forced to learn and so you know because you experience mm. it and so like uh you yeah. know you know in terms of the store like that's a very different thing that you have compared to like Watchbox in Hong Kong because they're in like on the 14th floor pretty discreet somewhere in an office yeah. I think it's mainly is an office building you're on like in landmark and you know collected man actively doesn't even tell where people where their office is so yeah. do you think the um store gives you what value add does it give you oh i mean tons i think i mean being at least to my knowledge the first uh pre-owned store in hong kong history to actually open in a nice mall in the watch capital of the world i think that speaks volumes right i mean um the landlords are not stupid they did their dd as well they called brands they called the they called people obviously because hong kong as you know is the world's capital i mean commercial capital for watches uh, objectively per capita by far even today right like it's if you're looking at it by population hong kong outstrips everyone by miles and miles and miles and um basically uh the fact that all these secondary stores it's not like they don't want to open in malls it's malls that don't let them open because it, it it doesn't look good in their brand mix whereas with us like we brought something very different uh no one leaves our store pissed or at least i hope they don't um and if they do then you know dm me <laughs> we'll make it right but um you a lot of dms now <laughs> but uh basically like for us it's like they're, we're not hiding anything we're not we're transparent buyers know what sellers net sellers know what buyers pay you know what you're signing up for when you come here. We have a few brands blessings and, uh, you know, our landlord did their due diligence and they loved our concept, our store space. They actually saw that, hey, we're willing to invest in an mm -hmm. experience, which in the past, in the secondary space, people haven't really invested in an experience. And in my opinion, it's like, I want secondary watches to be kind of similar to the art space in the sense where 
if there's a secondary art gallery and a primary art gallery and you walk in as a re- as a regular person who doesn't know much about art you're not going to know if this gallery is secondary or primary because they're done at the same level the gallerist is just as knowledgeable in the secondary gallery as they are in the primary gallery you get champagne you get water you get all this type of stuff but obviously the secondary gallery is more expensive why the fuck wasn't it done like this before in the past, right? Like in the past two years, like I just thought that was crazy. The person paying 150 grand US or I mean now less, but like uh, four or five, seven, 11 uh, steel in the past was getting treated infinitely worse than the person who paid 25K at retail and got, uh, got treated like a king or a queen. That doesn't make sense to me. And so that's, that's you know, like why uh, the stores basically. Okay. <laughs> and like- no, that's a great answer. Thank you. And coming up to the end of the coming up towards the end of the interview, like what you kind of did tell a little bit, but could you give us a bit more on um, what is the future of risk check? What can we expect in the next? Yeah, let's say give you a year. Yeah, I things mean, change quickly. Um, don't want to reveal too much, obviously, but gonna have a completely brand new site, uh, app, um, auctions, as you now know. Um, and uh, working more closely with watch brands, uh, which is something that we're very excited about. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're potentially opening more locations in the next year. So in the next year, we should have more risk checks, um, basically okay. uh, focusing on Asia. So by the way, how did you how did you come up with the name? I was on a plane. I think I was drunk, um, <laughs> brainstorming. And it was the first name that I thought of actually <laughs> and uh, thought of like 30 names. And like at the end of it, I was just like, actually the first name is the best one. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. It just, it, it just okay. clicked like my partner and I just liked it. So. Right. And my last question, uh, aside from being interviewed on the waiting list podcast and having me and long, long as friends, I can't include Jacqueline that just yet because I don't think she's your friend, but what has has been the highlight of your horological journey so far would you say because you you've uh had quite the ride yeah yeah really quite the ride highlight shit yeah not just risk check all of it the highlight is you're very fortunate to have many i think like so it's hard for you to pick you know what he's just waiting for you to say meeting daniel like <laughs> that's the aside no, from I, I, no, you, just in case you didn't put that in i already put that in like but seriously <laughs> aside aside from meeting you in 2017 right uh uh 20, 20 i met you this year 2022 <laughs> oh you mean back when you did meet, meet yeah, me no when we oh, just uh, met uh 2017 yeah i can't remember but you know when you said the story about the 5711 yeah. that was a blast from the past because i remember when you got that watch yeah. I went to Liquid Laundry with you in Shanghai, yeah. down yeah. at the Shanghai Center, right? Can you remember? Yeah. Wow. You were telling me how the dial was like darker than the standard. So that I hadn't thought about that, but that, that is a blast from the past. That seems so long ago. Yeah, dude, it was it was like another like era. But obviously, I think the highlight is just the people, honestly. I think at the end of the day, it's the people that I've met um, from different realms of the industry right like whether you're someone from a brand brand owner caretaker of a brand or collectors passionate people like just the people that i've met along the way and the connections that i think 
I've built uh, in during my journey. I think that's that's been the highlight. I don't think you, I can pinpoint it to a specific moment or a mm. specific uh, event because I'm just getting started. <laughs> so I I think it's uh, yeah the journey is just beginning. Yeah, I like that mentality. Like personally, I think you've done really well. Like because I could pick you know your unique piece AP. In numerous mm. people you know ap's that you have you've you've had a lot of patek you've actually had many of these pieces your instagram doing uh, the china edition yeah doing the china thing yeah, exactly that was a highlight for sure mm. um yeah, for sure so like that's, that's featuring so that's... in hadinki you know revolution all of these little milestones they're all they're all at the time i remember how how we all felt you know do you remember like how we all felt about just entering and just dipping our toes and feel the feeling the way we felt right it's crazy man like if you really think about it like yeah when we were in shanghai like when we were just like eating i, I still remember when we met like at table number one we're eating yeah like, yeah uh, i ordered like a benedict i think <laughs> um yeah it's just it's crazy to to see that like we've all come so far in like such a short amount of time I yeah guess. For, for, for those that don't know actually you know like me and austin met like he was like literally the first watch guy we had like a meet talking about watches specifically it was about watches like i ever had in shanghai and theoretically maybe ever and uh again you know i i knew this guy right from the start you know and so i've been able to almost have a front seat view of how he's developed so feel quite fortunate about that but yeah we me and him actually go back quite a bit yeah yeah no, for but sure. anyway, that was the last question. Um, yeah, and it's you know it's almost a shame that we have to like go on to the next round. Um, but yeah, we're okay. now going on to the reverso round. So, mm-hmm. have you got your questions lined up for us? Um, yes, I, I just I think I want to change them though. Like last minute. Okay. <laughs> go for it. Um, actually, okay, Daniel. So for you, kind of gonna ask. Uh, kind of going to pull the uno reverse card on you and uh say basically ask a similar question of like how about for you right i mean like you've also had a crazy journey as well i mean you know shanghai watch gang shanghai watch festival as well like that that must have been a crazy crazy experience i mean yeah, what, was, I about that. Yeah. what was what was your highlight i mean in the in and you can't say the same thing that i did <laughs> yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't. um well actually a lot of what you said did resonate yeah because as you kind of just heard that I kind of just forgot about Shanghai Watch Festival because you keep moving forward, mm-hmm. right? I know it sounds so cliche to say that, but if you did kind of reminisce about the stuff that you did achieve and think that, then you, in a way, you kind of do inhibit your progress, right? And a lot of it is just keep moving forward and trying new things. And, and, and you know, not to say that experience isn't vital. It is because it then transports you and catapults you to the, to the next thing. Um, but at the times, you know, Shanghai Watch Festival was, yeah, especially the first one, mm-hmm. something that I thought I never thought something like this I could have done and pulled off. Uh, I actually think this podcast uh, mm-hmm. is a great highlight as well. You know, um, like I, I love doing it. Um, I love the people I get to do it with. I love the guests that we have on. Um, so again, that's kind of related to. To the people um i'm excited you know in the next year or so you know stuff i've been working on like see it, seeing it come to fruition and 
and uh, I think that will be the next highlight but you just have to constantly work on the next thing right because when you say highlight obviously you think exciting and the the next thing is always the most exciting thing you know because if it's been done it's not exciting anymore Mm -hmm. so yeah I think those those things I I think at the beginning you know something like something as small as this like meeting you yeah showing me your uh (laughs) like open work perpetual calendar ap and stainless steel right yeah <laughs> to meet collectors where to start to start shanghai watch gang to start seeing watches that you'd only seen in a book or a magazine and actually yeah. meet the people that own them that for me was a big thing like i loved that right yeah but like you and me now it you've kind of you know what i mean like you do it enough times yeah you know, it kind of loses its flavor yeah right and then you have to go on for the next thing and then you start affiliating with brands because you, you start looking for that feeling it's that feeling you're looking for yeah and then you you get that and then you just keep moving forward so yeah kind of similar to you but different pathway i think mm-hmm. yeah. no great answer um so uh i guess i'll ask jack next because uh on my zoom it's daniel jack and then lung lung <laughs> not in any particular order <laughs> but uh <laughs> So uh, for uh, Jack, uh, I mean, you're very young as well. Like, you know, you're next-gen collector. Um, how, how do you see the next 10 years, basically, for our generation in terms of, like, collecting trends? Like, do you think it will still be more steel sports watches and, like, sports watch type stuff? Or is it going to go more into, you know, refined taste? <laughs> like, and also, and also another question do you see people uh, your age basically getting into the hobby or finding a fascination for watches that they previously did not have? Mm. I don't know if I'm um, like qualified to answer for the mask. You're such a, you're such a yeah, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah. No, I yeah. can only answer for myself because like taste <laughs> is, is so different. Um, I've never really been into steel sports watches. Mm. I've never been one to like understand the craze and the hype around it. So um, uh, like it didn't bother me, but the only thing that bothered me was like how um, like it it just wasn't accessible to people who actually wanted it. Right. Like you mentioned earlier um, over the past couple of years, young people are a lot of them are now flippers and it just wasn't the case before. So I'm kind of happy that there is this like price correction in the current market, but who knows where it's going to go. I think personally in the next 10 years, just from the very limited um, uh, experience and what I see online and from people I talk with, um, I definitely see a refinement of taste and like a honing down um, of people just going into vintage more because like, even if you look at the market with the recent auction results, right? Yeah. There's a huge dip, not huge, but, but decent size dip um, in, in the modern pieces, but vintage pieces are just still as strong as they were before. And even if not even stronger. So I think, you know, sooner or later, people are going to understand that, the i don't want to say value but but the um yeah maybe value value proposition of of buying um vintage pieces versus currently manufactured collectibles 
because back then the pieces that we're now considering vintage they weren't manufactured as collectibles they were you just needed one and they're not being made anymore whereas now people are looking into the past seeing what you know is working and then manufacturing that as manufactured collectibles so i see huge value um inherent value within just getting the original thing or finding little quirks and and tweaks within the pieces that people might not be realizing um second question i think and this is you can argue it both ways uh younger generation are mm, i still think that you know our group if you go really really deep is still a very small percentage of the 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 you know age population right i think most people who are into watches like we're talking you know people who aren't buying um uh what's like a what's like a, the watch that gen z people want to buy i actually don't know like what's the brand that people actually are buying the most it's really just steel rolex steel steel okay oil oak steel okay so so steel sports models um i see there being a big well again from my limited like what i see people getting more interested in even two-tone watches now right which just wasn't popular uh a few years ago but i now see a lot of people looking and wearing two-tone watches maybe there is this romantic feeling of looking into the past and kind of like a vintage um inspired look from a fashion perspective which isn't a bad thing but um a lot of people are looking at watches as accessories whereas you know us or like the small group of us are more geeky and nerdy about the technical aspect so i think you know even if watches were to become status and well they are like but in mass form become status symbols and fashion accessories it's not technically like a bad thing i was just talking about this um like before the podcast have you guys seen the new furlan mari the the cornavash with the black sector dial oh uh, yes have you guys seen it dan well no. no okay no okay so it's basically like a um yeah it's basically a, a watch with a cornavash case and a black sector dial Um, yeah dial and what's really funny was when i first they were teasing it online right for like the past week or so so i was really curious what dial design they were going to come up with because obviously you know the previous one was very much an homage to the 1463 which you know is patek so i was curious oh from the cornavash case are they going to do like an homage or a tribute to a vacheron uh timepiece So when I first saw the the dial and I I immediately screenshot it and sent it to my friend who owns a um Patek 96 with the exact same dial layout. So like I don't want to say 100% but very very likely the team probably saw that Patek 96 which is very, you know, famous and 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 sold for a big amount um in auctions like in the previous years or so and they took the inspiration from that so i was just asking him like what do you think of it cuz it clearly is kind of like a mock up 
of mm-hmm. your watch in a different case whatnot and i fully expected him to be like oh what is this bullshit like why can't you have any creativity in your creations right you already did it once with the 1463 and yeah people are a fan of it but a lot of people also give you bullshit but like why can't you just be creative for once so i was expecting him to say that and he came came back and said i think it's great i think it diversifies the market and there obviously is a big price difference between this watch and my watch but if they liked the design it spoke to them i'm sure it's going to speak to the mass market and i think you know if it's going to get more uh, watches on people's wrists why not i was like yeah you are uh, more wise than i am and i think wow. now that i think it's, it's a great thing oh yeah, yeah. Eh, maybe not so great but it's not as bad as i originally thought before i heard his response so i think you know next 10 years It'll be great to see young people have watches on them, um, even if it were treated as fashion accessories, even if you don't care about the horological or the technical aspects. So um, I'm just a big vintage geek. So I, 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 I want the more people to fall in love with vintage timepieces. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Uh, very, very. Uh, yeah, no, great answer. Um, I don't know if it's relatable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so for you, uh, my question is more about, um, you know, female collectors and mm-hmm. uh, it's not really a question, but it, it's mm-hmm. kind of like how basically how do you see this space evolving in the next five, six years? Um, basically for because, as you know, in the past, basically in the past two years, there's been a lot more spotlight um, on female collectors, as there should be, because there should be more spotlight, actually um because mm-hmm. you guys i mean f- women were the og collectors right like we wouldn't mm-hmm. really have wristwatches without women and so um how do you yeah how do you see that space evolving and do you think it's evolving too slow or like yeah just what are your thoughts basically um i think okay let's start off with what you see online so obviously you see a lot of new female watch accounts and the community is obviously growing and then girls are becoming I guess more confident to post and share like their interest in watches right but in Mm -hmm. terms of brands I have always said this I mean if I look back and I listen to the older episodes um I always said like there's only a few brands who are doing a really good job like AP creating pieces that even guys want so I think it's a bit slow but I'm also forgiving in this um and understanding like it's a very, very old and traditional industry, right? So they probably need another five to 10 years for them to create a lot of products that are really, I would say like stronger pieces for women. I think it Mm -hmm. takes time, yeah, Yeah. to convince them that it's worth the R&D, it's worth like the time and effort. So I don't blame them, but I can see they are really trying really, really hard. Yeah. And I and I always say this, like, I don't think me and Jack are a good representation of like most female collectors, because mm-hmm. a lot of the girls I speak to, they really, really do like the diamond pieces. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like, I love a lot of diamond pieces, too. I just yeah. think uh, there is a market for it and the brands are listening. So yeah. I don't want to make any assumptions like, okay, they're not listening. They're not trying. I know they're trying. It just takes time. And you can see this with like, like the shortage of pieces uh, pieces for female now mm-hmm. a lot of women pieces now it's the same like there's no stock so yeah. I think the demand is there so it's a good sign generally and I'm happy 
I'm glad that you also said that, you know, a lot of women do like the diamond stuff because that is a question that a lot of like watch nerd collectors think that women don't, but they're just making shit up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lot of guys like the diamond stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, it's, uh, you're, I think, yeah, you're totally right. Like brands are trying, right? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to see more men wearing smaller size watches. Uh, I just have very fat wrists, so it's kind of <laughs> right. That's the end of the reverser round. Well done, Austin. Good questions. Um, we now go on to the pump push round. You ready? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Nah, they're not bad. They're not bad. They're not bad. Okay, they're not bad. Right. When was the? What was the last thing you bought and loved? A watch. Okay, oh, which, yeah. what, what was it? Which watch? Um, I guess uh, the, the, the Salmon Dial uh, Perpetual Calendar uh, Royal Oak um, in Titanium. It's a watch that I didn't expect to love so much in the flesh, but I basically wore it for like three weeks, three, four weeks straight, and I like couldn't take it off my wrist. It's just that shade of salmon is just so, so good. But um, yeah, I haven't felt that way about a watch in a while, actually. So that was a, that was a quite. Um... What did you change it out for in the end? No, I didn't. I didn't change it out for anything. Like I just. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I just. Uh, I mean, it, it was basically I, I wore. I brought two watch, uh, two APs to to Europe. It was the black ceramic, open work, uh, like the fifteen four one six E and uh, uh, this, and I wore the salmon dial infinitely more than the black ceramic uh, double balance wheel, which was something I was not expecting. I wore the black ceramic on the planes because can't scratch anything or whatever, but uh, that's about it. And, mm-hmm. so, yeah. and what was the last item of clothing you bought? Oh, shit. I think, uh, I don't know, probably in Europe, like I bought like item of clothing. I don't actually buy that many clothes. Because like for me, like as as I'm sure you know, like I, I have like Seven. 30 black t-shirts from like different brands and they all kind of look the same. And I have like 30 black pairs of pants that kind of look the same and like kind of it. Um, it must be very easy to buy for. Yeah. Um, I guess a hat. I bought a hat from Hermes, like, you know, like uh, in Switzerland. Like, I, yeah, like a hat. Okay. Because my hair is, I mean, I'm half Jewish, yeah, your, right? Your hair so does like, this wild thing, man. It's got a life yeah. of its own. Yeah, it's uh, annoying. Right, next one. Is your life just watches and watches or are you developing any other hobbies or yeah, have any other interests that you enjoy? I mean, now that watches are my life, like professionally, it's become watches and watches and watches. Like it really just isn't much more than watches. But obviously, like I in the past uh, few years, I've started appreciating art a lot more and, you know, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's like, in my opinion, I think hobbies come and go for me for a lot of like non-watch related hobbies. I think watches are just the only constant in my life. Whereas like everything else, like, you know, I went through a period where I love cufflinks. I went through a period where I love whiskey, collecting whiskey. I went through a period where I loved other stuff, but like, I don't give a shit about any of that anymore. I just still only care about watches. Right. And mm-hmm. so I just think it will just always be like that. But right now it's, I guess, a little bit of art, but I'm not really actively buying that much. Um, I'm just okay. appreciating and learning. Mm-hmm. Okay, this might be a tough one for you. Um, what would you say is your personal signifier? 
I guess all black men, like uh, all black. <laughs> I think people people associate me with wearing a snapback cap. Um, like, uh, I don't know if people think I'm like balding or like <laughs> like why the reason <laughs> of me wearing it, but it really just is my hair is very curly and and like in in a humidity in a humid yeah, environment. That, that a lot of, that that much hair in Hong Kong is it, hot, man. It's annoying. You're trapping dude. humidity in your hair. Exactly, dude. So that's why I need to wear a hat to like keep it up, you know. Uh, but um, I think probably all black, uh, probably the most dressed down person in the room. Um, I think that's generally the case, especially in watch related stuff. I'm usually always the most underdressed by like a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just me, dude. I'm not going to fucking dress up. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to be fake. All right. But yeah. The best gift you've ever received. The best gift i've ever received i don't receive many gifts um like like meaningful gifts <laughs> uh yeah, there, there goes my black sock idea <laughs> no i think honestly the best gift that i received uh in recent memory was probably you know when i did my china edition uh like jasmine actually painted me like a uh, china edition basically like by hand and i was really really cute so. for a moment there i thought you were gonna say ap gifted me the china edition <laughs> <laughs> one split second <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i think i think that i, I like meaningful i don't I, I don't really i mean obviously material gifts are fine but like i don't think material gifts are anything that is memorable right, right. you're not even like, getting black socks now okay <laughs> yeah get the black hat right Okay, next one. What's an indulgence that you could never forgo? Oh. I love food so much. I mean, like, I love, yeah, probably just, like, unhealthy food at least once a week. Like, like at least, like, that's something. I just love food. In Hong Kong, what would that be? Like, what is your go-to without much thought? You know, I'm just going to go for that. I mean, I just had food poisoning, so it's like kind of a bad time to ask me. But, <laughs> but um, I really, really like, uh, you know, those um, fuck, what are they called? Like those sandwiches with uh, just egg and lunch meat. Yeah, oh. <laughs> oh, good, like the Hong Kong ones. So they only taste good in Hong Kong. They don't taste any. Oh good yeah. And like the They're thing, so professional you, in Hong Kong, aren't they? Yeah, but you need to be like it needs to be like the very cheap like street side one that's like with really fluffy egg and it's like super cheap and like you bite into that shit and you're just like mm, it's like a blast from like you, you're basically it's like east west like i don't know it's like this fucking it's great um i love siumai i love dim sum i miss uh i miss all of the delicacies and i mean not delicate i mean i guess like the shit from shanghai basically like shall uh, yeah like jim uh, yeah like uh shenzhen manto um Xiaolongbao and like uh Guotier, like proper proper Guotier and like and like no <laughs> like you know there's no no in Hong Kong which which freaks me like I, I mean it, it messes with my head a lot I'm like how isn't there this dish in 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 Hong Kong I couldn't I can't find it it anywhere I've searched for two years and I can't find it but yeah I guess like I love food well, that, that leads me to that leads me on to my next one really nicely which is you love your food which you've already said what um, is the most unforgettable meal experience you've had? And you've, you've eaten at some nice places with some nice people. 
I think the most unforgettable meal that I've had was had nothing to do with the food, but yeah. I think it was still just with with Sean, my my business partner for Rishcheck. And when I my first meal with him, when I told him my idea of Rishcheck, I was very sick as well. I actually think I had COVID. This was like December 2019 because I was in Beef Bar in Hong Kong with him. It was my first time there at that point. And we ordered food and I couldn't taste anything. And I thought the restaurant was really bad. I was like, in my mind, I was like, what the fuck are they cooking with? I was like, they're just not using any salt, any pepper. Like they're just cooking air. Like that's literally what I thought because I couldn't taste anything. But that was like, I guess when I told him about like, you know, my idea for risk check and he was the first person that really resonated with it so much so that he quit Hypebeast, right? Like a few months later and to, to pursue this with me. And so I think for me, that's probably the most memorable meal that I've had. Okay, good answer. I like that one. Um, now that you're in the watch industry, who's someone you actually look up to within the industry? Man, I look up to so many people in the industry, dude. Like, because I think, I don't think there's a single person that has achieved absolutely everything that is that you know like it's people have done great things in their own respect right but i think if you're talking about people in the industry like people that run brands and i don't know like uh honestly this is going to sound cliche but I, I do really respect francois like from ap like what he's managed to do in such a short amount of time is nothing short of incredible right i mean he's been with the company for 28 years started as a salesperson like no one cannot respect that you know and if you do then you're a piece of shit basically <laughs> like and you're, you're in, it's just you can't risk no one can diss the fact that he started as a salesperson in paris and is not that long after became the ceo of markets and eventually the entire brand that's insane mm -hmm. um and uh managed to grow the company from a few hundred million to 1.7 billion while cutting retailers that's really hard as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, really respect Max Busser. I think a pioneer of obviously create creative genius uh, and also um, the fact that he was the first person to kind of give credit where credit was due for independent, lesser known watchmakers, right? Like what he did at Harry, Harry Winston branding. Hey, this is made by F.P. Jorn, the Opus series, right? Like, oh, like, you know, showcasing brands that historically might not have had this that kind of spotlight shown on them and he carries that ethos as well with everything that he that he does at mbnf today right like every movement is developed with xyz person they they're given credit and like they basically talk about how the symbiotic relationship works between mbnf and whatever creator that they're working with and i think that's something that's also really great um i really respect uh ed malan and bertrand malan from moser as well um, I think uh, what them as leaderships are kind of like the they're kind of like the the person that stands up to like big brother. Right. Like kind of like uh, in the watch space. And, and I think that that really resonates a lot with uh, the next generation. Um, and I think it's also incredible with their product offering in such a short amount of time as well. They've managed to actually create very clear lines uh, for their business um, from a, you know, from a product offering perspective. And they've managed to also have lines that are for the people that, you know, kind of like the, the very like out there type of stuff, like the Swiss, the Apple watch type thing, like, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, and then there's a very traditional like endeavors and all this type of stuff that they have, like the collab that they did with Armory. 
and they just released the undefeated collab as well like it's like it's mm -hmm. cool like what they're doing is just they're they're attracting a, a lot of different demographics of collector and i think that that's very hard to do and mm -hmm. i know that the buyer for like the swiss alp might not be the buyer for another line that they do but i think that's the genius in it right they're just attracting very different collectors um into the brand and honestly one thing that i have to say as well like uh I, I really do think like the entire LVMH like watch division in the past two years has really stepped up. Like they've really stepped their game up, like especially brands like Zenith. Um, and like uh, they've, yeah, they've just been killing it, I think. Um, and like, even, uh, like Louis Vuitton as well, dude. Like when I was on, when I was on the GPHG jury, like the, the reason why like these Louis Vuitton won so much, won so many awards was because it was actually quite unanimous, like over there. It's like when you're actually seeing the watches in hand and you look at the price and you see that it's like brand new, like developed versus like the other stuff there. It's quite impressive. Um, but yeah, like uh, obviously not to, not everything is my taste, but you know, like I, I appreciate that they're moving in the right direction, basically. I like how they have such a young team too. Yeah, exactly. Right. And uh Obviously for TAG, I mean, Frederick Arnault is heading that up, right? Which is also speaks to them also resonating with the next gen. I mean, they just released an NFT smartwatch, which for TAG Hoyer, like as a brand to do, like it makes total sense, I think. Um, and it's actually quite innovative. Um, we got like a tick, like it's, you know, like it, it basically speaks to an, another, again, a completely different crowd of mm -hmm. people, which is very smart. And so, yeah, I just think there's a lot of what's going on. If you're talking about independent, watchmakers i mean i love what raul pages is doing like i just you know i went to his workshop uh last last trip basically his home um just, yeah it's incredible but yeah people i look up to is just yeah there's so many so many people <laughs> like it's like it's hard to fit it in but yeah. um yeah mm. right last one what were you always finding in fridge um water uh coconut water and uh, soda water, <laughs> like sparkling water, <laughs> like basically just those three things I think are constant. But um, if I wasn't living with Jasmine, it would probably just be those three things forever, <laughs> like in my fridge. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, basically those three things. Right. Well, Austin, that brings the episode to conclusion. Um, if you wanted to hear more about Austin's life story, it is actually what we covered in episode 20. And uh, you can actually go back and, and, and listen to that. Uh, to this day, I think that content is pretty unique and personal. I don't think I've read it or heard it anywhere else. And yeah, it's dude, definitely I worth listening. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, yeah, that was, I opened up completely in that episode, mm -hmm. which is cool. Yeah. Okay. And thank you to you, Austin, for coming onto the show. How did oh, you find it the second time around? Great. No, got to do it third time. <laughs> yes, we will do you again soon. Um, Can't wait. Yeah, because you're coming for round two. Yeah. <laughs> uh in a couple of months time yeah. um yeah and we're going to go into like how you got that fake chin of yours and how you've graduated <laughs> from wearing all black about, to weight still on weight it's not even like uh it's not even sharp anymore <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you, no, no. you'd make a great like gillette kind of advertisement the way you just did that oh. and how you do that thing with your chin and, and the mirror <laughs> clearly a very you see your hand going around it like this. yeah oh my God. No, All right, jokes okay. aside, you know I love you, and yeah. I'm sure the audience can tell how close we are. Thanks to everyone for checking in on this latest episode of the podcast. That was Horror Loop. Over and out. Bye. 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 As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, 
our feedback. Feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.